Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Tower cleared. Welcome to Space 3D. In this episode, co-hosts Tom Hill and Eleanor Rangers continue their conversation with engineer Tim Walsh, who currently supports the Joint Polar Satellite System Weather Satellite Program, a collaborative effort between NOAA and NASA that delivers key observations for severe weather events and environmental hazards. In part three of our interview with Tim, We'll discuss how timelines for the development and deployment of new satellite platforms is rapidly shrinking from a typical decade-long process to one where currently deployed instrumentation is being applied in new ways, such as for space weather prediction, and that future satellite design is evolving into smaller, simpler platforms that have reduced times for design, testing, and deployment. Tim and Tom will also share some anecdotes about their experiences with satellite launches and adventures of working in a repurposed hospital as launch headquarters. And with all this focus on satellite technology, we'll be sure to find out whether we can give up on the use of more local observations of atmospheric phenomena, such as Doppler radar, or even the famous P-3 Orion Air Force Hurricane Hunters. But you talked about the 10-year time frame that it can take to design a satellite, to design and build and fly a satellite. What kind of stuff's going on in that time frame and where, where you're working? I want to say that that's a very conventional timeline. We've been encouraged to try to re greatly constrict that or reduce it. But basically, it starts with the requirements. You go to the customer, you go to the scientists and the users, like the National Weather Service or Department of Commerce or emergency responders, and say, what do you need? What can you anticipate you needing in 10, 20 years? And because um, I, I use the JPSS program as an, as an example. We launched the first example of the JPSS instruments in 2011, and we're going to launch five satellites total, which will bring us all the way to 2038. And so you're basically defining what kind of requirements are you know, in the 20 zeros, uh, you know, 2000s, early 2000s, that will bring you almost into four decades worth of instrument um, data recovery. And so that is where it gets tricky. You know, you want to cut down that cycle time so that you can better instruments on orbit. But going back to your point, this, the instruments are so high quality that I think we're probably barely scratching the surface as to how to exploit the data as much as we could. In other words, um, the NASA NOAA side, uh, NOAA has this thing called the Proving Ground, which is a great, it's like kind of a Petri dish for new applications for existing data. So we'll bring the data down from the spacecraft, whether it's imagery, whether it's sounding data where we're taking temperature and, and humidity uh, profiles throughout the atmosphere, whether it's um, uh, any number of types of data. But we'll say, we'll bring it in front of real, real meteorologists and say, how could you possibly use this data differently? And I think what, um, Tom, you were referring to earlier is that people really, once they've given the creative license and the ability and the funding to, to say, go crazy, um, they'll find new ways to use existing data. And that's really fun. That's really satisfying to see. I was, I was yeah, and as the satellite operators, we tend to just see that in some sort of news circular or something like that. We don't uh, get to it day to day. But as long as the satellites are pointed in the right direction and continue scanning, we're good. That's, that is so funny. But, yes, that's true. Once, as long as the rubber is still hitting the road, you know. But uh, it is fun to see the other side, though, because as we get interaction with these um, users, 
even though you're launching or you're operating the same type of spacecraft, every couple of years you'll find new ways to use existing products or whole different products altogether. And some examples of that were some of these fire products and volcanic ash products and other things, um, fog products, uh, things that people are using to help. You know, the big focus here is protection of lives and property, but there's a lot of economic impacts if you have to shut down an airport due to fog or other things like that. So. Um, I think they're finding ways to use this data, um, mostly because of the high temporal rate. Goes uh, the goes our satellite can take the whole um, a picture of the whole Earth in five minutes, which is pretty phenomenal. And they can focus in on an area just a thousand by a thousand kilometers every thirty seconds, which is really, really wild. I know Tom, you've seen some of the data, the the video loops, and they're. Um, yeah, especially considering the previous generation spacecraft, what, it took 23 minutes to do a whole disk? 26, 26 minutes. minutes, yep. And so, yeah, it's, it's five times faster, um, four times better space uh, resolution, and then uh, three times as many spectral bandwidth. So it's really a, a big, if you look at the data cube of all the data coming down, wow. it's pretty rich. And there just seems to be like this increase in seismic activity recently. Um, you know, Puerto Rico, uh, I'm just seeing one of my friends Facebooking me saying there was a pretty significant quake in South uh, Florida just about an hour ago. And then wow. you know, there was Turkey last night. Has there been any application of weather satellite data for, I don't know what, I mean, monitoring earthquakes or something in some way, shape or form? Eleanor, I'd love to be able to help you out there. I, I, have, I remember seeing a paper many, many years ago, like 20 years ago that talked about the potential on um, tying, there's a correlation be, behind some weather phenomena or some measured atmospheric phenomena and, and seismic activity. But I really have not seen any of that recently. And and I, I do find it interesting. I don't know if it's because of the 24-hour news cycle, but we're, I, we have a I have a colleague here who's um, who's from Puerto Rico, and I was asking him about that. And he said, you know, well, Tim, there's, a, there's always been seismic activity in Puerto Rico, but this has been particularly bad. And it just seems like, I don't know if it's being because things are reported quicker or, or with greater detail, or if it's, uh, if it's actually increased seismic activity. But I would love to know whether there's a way to have any type of space-borne um, uh, observational capability and tied to seismic activity. Well, I was just going to say, you know, I, I have friends in California that have sort of joked with me saying, they say that, oh, that this is like earthquake weather. They've actually made comments like that to me, that there's, I don't know if it's like in the middle of summer and it's warm or humid or something. And they have actually said that, that, oh, this is the type of weather, you know, earthquakes happen. So there's probably still, just that there isn't any floods or fires. So yeah, what's yeah, left? Something else must be going on. But it makes me wonder <laughs> if there, so. in fact, is some sort of correlation um, or some weird, I don't know, magma, magma shifts globally that may be precipitating this. But I can't imagine there's got to be something that we'll be able to exploit someday to maybe we'll have an earthquake prediction model from space. Never say never. I would love to find that kind of application. That would I, be I don't know how that would out. be implemented. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm just kind of just throwing that out there. You know, it's, it's not really seismic activity, but it would be really interesting. I should, I'd be a real remiss to not mention that um, the, the other thing that we look at from on orbit is space weather. And it doesn't, it's not seismic activity at all, but it does impact things like, uh, you know, RF um, radio wave propagation, whether it's uh, power line, uh, dis, you know, power distribution and other things. Basically, all that stuff that's coming off the sun affects our magnetic um, uh, fields around the Earth and other things. And so it's, it's far from uh, seismic activity, but it's certainly not weather. 
when they have predictions of like increased auroral activity and so forth, are those the weather satellites detecting that or is there something else? There's multiple uh, sources that get gather the data, but um, the geostationary side, um, the GOES-R satellite actually has a platform that's looking at the sun at all times. It's basically on it on the solar array um, yoke, which is basically the part that holds the solar array. And it's basically a platform that images the sun and also receives uh, data about the particles that are coming off the sun uh, at the geosynchronous altitude. And so that's, ba that's all data that's also fed into a, a space weather model. And we also have magnetometers on those satellites that measure the Earth's magnetic field out there. And so they put together a big model that determines you know, how severe, um, whether it's electrons, protons, or other um, space particles would impact the Earth, uh, the Earth on the ground, and based on the basically the severity or, or the, the amount of flux from the sun. So yeah, the, you know, Tom, you, I don't know if you might be, be better to talk about this than me, but I, I think there's a big uh, capability there. That, there's some amazing imagery. Yeah, too, there's some the great sun. stuff going on there. And actually, the uh, the proliferation of satellites in low Earth orbit are giving is giving us a much better picture. We can put very small sensors on a bunch of satellites and get a much clearer picture of what's going on. That's really an important thing to point out, especially at, at the LEO altitude, the Earth's magnetic field is more prevalent. Um, one of the struggles we had on the, the geostationary altitude was um, you have to put the magnetic sensor, the magne magnetometer it's called, as far away from the spacecraft as you can. So you usually put it on a boom or something like that. But anytime you turn something on on the spacecraft, you create an ambient um, magnetic field around the spacecraft that you have to subtract from whatever you're measuring on the on the ground, and so or from the Earth's magnetic field, so that's a struggle. And because the magnetic field is so weak out there, um, it's it's more of a struggle. But maybe on the Leo side, and I'm not as familiar on the Leo side; I'm relatively new. But I can imagine that it's probably a better way to sense the data. And if you have a way to have a lot of small sensors um, that maybe could piggyback on even a commercial provider, um, maybe that would be a good way to to get as many, uh, many samples as possible. This also brings up an interesting point that probably, well, a lot of people don't think about, but once data, once we've decided that data is important enough that we need it in our everyday life, it's no longer NASA's purview. NASA's a research and development agency. So once weather satellites got important enough to be used for day-to-day -day use, they, they weren't NASA's responsibility anymore. They went, got switched to another organization, being NOAA, our weather organization, but NASA's still involved with the idea of developing new technologies and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, it's really fun to see how that relationship has developed or maintained over the years because, as you pointed out, starting in 1960, NASA has been at the forefront of creating these spacecraft and the instruments, and then about a decade later, NOAA came around, and basically, as you point out, NASA wants to create the, the next generation all the time or look at the one-of-a-kind scientific spacecraft or do some unique um, activity. But they, the, the partnership that NASA and NOAA have created um, to, for the, these two types of satellites that you and I have worked on have, has been pretty tremendous. In fact, um, as you point out, NASA doesn't really want to operate the spacecraft. They don't actually – the National Weather Service is part of NOAA, so it makes perfect sense – that, um, that NOAA does all the operation and activity with the spacecraft once they're launched and handed over. But uh, that's that's been a, a relationship that I think has been very strong and will be continuing to, into the future, I'm sure. So let, let's regale them some stories about our uh, our prep for launch. When we were getting ready to launch, 
on uh, goes L and M, which goes satellites when they're on the ground have letters, and then that once they get into orbit, they have numbers assigned. So were you you were a, a shift lead or something, weren't you, for those? Well, I, I'll actually I'll back up just even a little bit more because um, in my pre-Tom days. Wait, you know, wait, no, there was no time for pre-Tom. But uh, I remember the first time we were launching one of these new satellites, and I had the opportunity as people were launch- as people were sending commands from the control center where we were going to fly them from, the satellites were still on the ground in the factory, and so they're called in to end tests, and so we were. We have to find ways to kind of make the satellite think that it's flying while it's still on the ground. And nowadays we have ways to really simulate um, whether it's star data or Earth data or whatever and feed it to the satellite to make it believe it's truly flying. But back in the day, I remember we were trying to stimulate um, just a a sun sensor. And I remember um, talking to the the group in the – it's in this place called the High Bay where you test it. And the High Bay is – as you guys may have talked about in previous podcasts, is where everyone gets dressed up in a big bunny suit, and, and you basically, um, it's an ultra-clean facility. You want to keep the satellite and its instruments as dust-free and as particle-free as possible. And so I spent my first couple of years working in the high bay, helping out testing of the satellite as we were preparing for launch. And, and uh, when we were doing these end-to-end tests, we had to um, stimulate the sun um, sensor in a way that was semi-realistic. And I remember we were looking for an estimate of what it would take to get a create a real sun type sensor or a simulator, and it was going to be many tens of thousands of dollars. And I remember going out to an Ace Hardware store here at, at uh, close to NASA, and at the time uh, picked out a, a 1.5 million candle powers like deer spotter. Remember those old like those headlights? Not there. There were right. You held them in your hand and pointed them was, out to see if the deer could stop and look at you. Correct, and they were. It was like fifteen dollars, and I just remember bringing it to the high bay, and and the the uh, contractor for the spacecraft was like, "Are, are you serious?" And, and we ended up bringing it in and using it. Um, but I remember going back to the hardware for store for a second. We were talking to the guy who was selling it to us, and he said, "What are you going to use this for?" And he said, "We mentioned that we were going to test a satellite," and he he paused for a moment and he said, "Well, how are you going to see it?" You know, so he, he thought we were going to point it up in case. But uh, after, we, after we realized what he was asking, we did tell him that we were testing the satellite on the ground. But that was back in the day when we were using some arguably kind of archaic methods. Like we used um, – we had these things called mag torquers that used the Earth's magnetic field to, to kind of impart a torque to move the satellite. It's kind of a, a way to keep the satellite stable in orbit. And, and I remember testing it with, a, with an old Boy Scout compass, just trying to figure out um, – whether it was wired properly, and more importantly, when people were sending commands, did the commands properly interact with the satellite? So it was pretty. I just remember those as kind of really fun old days because um, you know access to the satellite hardware was really easy. And then once you move up in the organization, you get less access to satellite. They don't let you touch anything, right? I remember those times really fondly, and that was right about the time that I, when I was moving off of GOES, um, is when you came on, Tom, and then we were working in the same control center for a long time. But those, those were good times. And I do remember also, you know, people were incredi- incredibly um, innovative, but I just do remember that teams, times seemed to be a little bit more informal. Like, I do remember walking into a high bay um, in one of these clean rooms and seeing a rubber plant. I don't know if you like, like a house plant. And, and as you know, um, you want to keep this facility as clean as possible, so we had to remove that rubber plant. I remember that people, that cleanliness at the time for this new location was not was not uh, at the highest quality, but we had to do some things like that. But I'm 
trying to think of some other things, Tom, that um, back in the well, day. Well, for one thing, just the building but, um, we were in yeah, was kind of its own story. Oh, absolutely. In fact, so when Tom and I first started working together, we worked in a building that was created for, it was in Suitland, Maryland. Um, it's where NOAA still controls the satellites, but um, NASA and NOAA were working together in this control center that was built originally for the invasion, and if I remember correctly, the invasion of Japan. It was going to be a Japan, hospital, right, a military hospital for the wounded coming back from the invasion of Japan. And, we, and there were multiple wings, and, and uh, it, it was really set up as a hospital, but it was repurposed as, uh, among other things, to fly satellites. And, and uh, it, was, it was from 1945, yes, and it did. certainly felt that way, Tom, right? There was a lot, there was a lot of uh, um, whether it was asbestos to deal with or, or whatever, but we, there was a lot of things. Uh, yes, but I do think that if people have the opportunity ever to go in an official capacity to where NOAA flies the satellites now, it's a pretty phenomenal place. And I, I think they finally gave the facility um, or the, the mission the facility it really required and deserved. So um, it's pretty cool. It's kind of kind of kind of space geeky, and uh, there's a lot of antennas down there. And there's they when they think of DC and and space, they often think of Goddard Space Flight Center in Beltsville or Beanbelt. But uh, down in Suitland, Maryland, about uh, about uh, quarter of the way around the Beltway is um, on Pens- off of Pennsylvania Avenue. There is is a really cool facility. It was again, as Tom mentioned, um, has it had its origins back in the '40s. But I think the the census is there. Um, DoD has some facilities there, but the, the NOAA facility is pretty cool, and that's where a couple hundred people are there responsible for flying the spacecraft and keeping them healthy and doing all the fun stuff on orbit. Just, a, just a, an example of how deep that confusion went. When I was in the Air Force, we were getting ready to launch a POSE satellite. We went to the East Coast for an overview briefing. We went to Goddard, and at the front gate, we were told, no, 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 you're at the wrong place. So we had to go to Suitland. We were a little late for that meeting. Right. I could, I could completely understand. I, I probably was maybe <laughs> on the other end of that meeting. Yeah, I, I think it's it's it, it was definitely um, – a period of of evolution, and I think it's like I said, the facility that they're in now is certainly, as you know, Tom, really, really yeah, uh, worthy. Yeah, it's a neat, it's a neat place. It uh, had some growing pains, but we got there. In fact, yes, it was. I do remember the area that the white noise generators and all the other things that you guys required <laughs> just to even work. So yeah, one of the things we did in preparation for these launches were we called called them rehearsals, launch scenarios, and we had a computer that pretended it was the satellite. And then we would we would make things go wrong with the with the computer, you know, as acting as a satellite. And then the team had to figure out how they were going to go forward with it. I know, Tom. That's where I've probably most recently worked with you. Tom is is as you guys probably know in in, the, in this podcast world is has, he's a space geek certainly, and he's very uh, he's very uh, innovative or sometimes devious. Um, but we usually want to have somebody who's a sim coordinator who can really think of all the possible things that could go wrong, but more importantly, things that would likely go wrong, and then try to make a scenario as, as uh, realistic as possible to try to stress the team. And the good news is, as you go through these scenarios, and as Tom mentioned, the simulators are trying to, to give the satellite uh, or give the ground system a, a sense of maybe a maneuver or a launch or something unique uh, that a launch team would go through. And then uh, Tom or whoever the sim uh, director is would inject faults or anomalies and see how the team uh, performed. And, and oftentimes it was really interesting because those were, to me, when I was actually uh, on a launch team, was were the most stressful times, even more stressful than launch in, in some cases because, you know, Tom, sometimes there were like three or four things going on simultaneously. It was really, uh, fortunately, not like real life. 
And it was a great way to train the team and a great way to develop develop teamwork, really, because we had to, once things go wrong, you create this thing called an, an anomaly um, you know, review team or whatever, and you'll get off and you'll define how you would respond to that fault on orbit. And so, really, it was a, a great way to hone the team. And it was. It was a lot of fun. One of my favorite uh, things that happened, though, was not deliberately imported but a bird got into the operations center. You missed that one. So, I mean, we had people screaming and diving under desks and all this stuff while we're trying to run this simulation. And it, it's something that could happen in, in Federal Building 4. Nowadays, I, I think it would get through, like, four levels of security just to get yeah. to the control center. So I, I don't think any birds will. So what do, you, what do you see? Where do you see us going in the future, Tim? I'll talk locally for a second on my the, the current system I'm supporting is this LEO system, this joint polar satellite system. I mentioned earlier how we have satellites that hypothetically, unless we have a really bad day, should keep us um, really busy with the data that we're providing now till 2038. So that good news there, and that's going to be well beyond, you know, probably my time on this program. But I, I definitely think the good news there, it allows us to provide complementary spacecraft or or data that would be in orbits that um, would help the, the weather, the meteorologists that are using the data. And and so I mentioned earlier that the word of the day seems to be uh, disaggregation. And and so we would like to take these sensors that we have on our current spacecraft, find ways to miniaturize them or otherwise um, reduce them, in some cases getting rid of frequencies or, or wavelengths that we don't actually use as much and make the instruments as simple and rep replicatable as possible and and perhaps provide a common interface that you could even provide to a, a third-party spacecraft provider. So in a perfect world, I could see a case where we're providing as many instruments on orbit, not necessarily on government platforms, but on commercial providers perhaps or government platforms combination. And um, just giving scientists more instances of data recovery on orbit. So I, I think that's where we're going to go. I do think that we're going to go to Away from, as we were referring to earlier, the Battlestar Galactica is to smaller spacecraft that are easier to get on orbit and have instruments that take you know, maybe half the time to create as opposed to those 10-year Yeah, for people who may have trouble um, picturing cycles. this, so we talk about the geosynchronous spacecraft where there theoretically three spacecraft can look at the, the entire planet below a certain latitude. You can't see the poles or anything like that, whereas the polar orbiting spacecraft are closer and go around and cover the whole Earth in about a day. So if you can disaggregate that and get it sensors all around the world, you might get the resolution of your low Earth orbiting spacecraft, but be able to see the entire globe at the same time. That would be a really big deal. Right. If you and hypothetically take into the logical extreme, you could if you have enough Leo spacecraft, the need for geo would go away if you had enough if you had enough observability of the whole Earth at any given time. But um, until we can you know, replace the 30-second update rates that we can get over CONUS with the uh, geostationary spacecraft, that obviously won't happen. But I do see a case that the obvious advantage of the global ones, as you pointed out, is the high latitude plus the global coverage. And so, yeah, if we could, gosh, if we could just get a, a bunch of those, a bunch of small sats with um, you know, sounders or some other type of instrument that the meteorologists need, on a bunch of different orbits, that would really be a positive. And I can see us going there. I think we've been encouraged to consider... Well, when Starlink has 42,000 satellites, you'd only need a couple hundred. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah, we're talking a, an order of magnitude or two uh, less than they are. But yes, that's the kind of thinking that I think we're encouraged to try to think of. We're going to try to stay out of the 
the get away from the conventional if that if if it makes sense. And of course, then we have a we have a difficult customer on the other side. We have to convince Congress that it's proper. And uh, the good news is though is that we're usually pretty well supported. I mean, weather is a pretty bipartisan issue, and so um, you know we. We basically um, are trying to do – we want to make sure that the money is spent wisely. So that's usually the biggest – we can't take sometimes the risks that a commercial provider can because we, we're using taxpayer money. You mentioned that, you know, the, these satellites can measure temperature and things like that. And I'm just thinking, trying to reflect on these instruments – these satellites are so sophisticated now and have improved our predictions so dramatically – why do we still need to have Doppler 10,000 radar or even the hurricane hunters flying out into the hurricanes and P3s? Is there still a need for that local level data? And what does that add above and beyond what the satellites are able to do now? I would say two things immediately. One of which the um, is just a lot of times you won't always get the coverage rate or at least the uh, in soundings cases, the there's basically, you could think of it as a, a, thermal, a, a column through the atmosphere. And you're basically, when you're sounding, you're taking temperature and humidity profiles through that column. And sometimes um, getting, the National Weather Service still uses balloons. And, and these balloons give what I would consider more truth data from, from the institute locations or local locations. And then we can use that to validate the data we're getting from on orbit. And honestly, the, the radar data is still so critical for the near time especially in the pre-GOES-R time frame, was still so critical for real-time severe weather prediction. I mean, people still look at radar first when a front is coming through, but it's, it's uh, definitely being augmented, and in some cases, I don't know about replaced, but it's definitely being augmented with the GOES-R data. But I think radar data is so critical for local reasons. I think you can get better, um, you can get really spatial, good spatial or, or location uh, data from that information. And also... Again, whether it's balloons or radar or other, other in-situ measurements, you can use that to validate the on-orbit information as well. So I, I think they're complementary, and I don't think you'll see one go away. Interesting. Tom, would you say anything differently there? I think that's I think that's what I would suggest. He might be. Oh, he's on mute again. Sorry, sorry, I'm be. muted, yeah. <laughs> so um, I th- definitely I think people are surprised to hear about the weather uh, balloons that are released every day at a specific time. And uh, oh, really? yeah, and they go up and they, yeah. they record the temperature and, and they determine the, the uh, winds. That's how they map the jet stream in many cases. That's a, that's a, a background thing that's been going on for decades and still, still will for a while. One thing that's somewhat related that I'll mention in terms of another complementary uh, kind of data source could be in the future balloons and or uh, yeah. um, like yeah. UAVs that fly super high altitude. So. I know that that's being – I've seen some uh, papers related to that, but those – obviously the advantage there is you don't get the launch costs and you don't – or the same level of, of launch costs or deployment costs, but you also might have a faster refresh rate. Like if you have a sensor or an instrument that be ready next year, you could actually launch it next year rather than wait for a launch vehicle opportunity. So there's, there's some kind of interesting things that I've seen. The balloons are obviously interesting because you can't control their location normally. They're usually um, – they're, they're, of course, following the prevailing winds. But UAVs I've seen as well, which could be hovering over a local area for I've seen cases or I've seen suggestions that are, it's like multiple weeks and or months. It's pretty cool. Where do, those, where do those balloons launch from? You know, it's interesting. I, I guess you guys are in northern Virginia. 
there in Sterling, um, there's a National Weather Service local office. And I know I've seen a video of, of the, <laughs> I, I don't know if it's every six hours or whatever, but there's a periodic time where uh, a meteorologist will come out and they'll launch a balloon. And um, it's, and if you, you probably, if you go online, you, you'll probably find some things on YouTube that, yeah, they, they basically use it for local validation of the data and, um, and calibration of the on-orbit data too. But I, Again, I, I would definitely ask a real. Yeah, when I was in the Air Force, Vandenberg Air Force Base was one of those locations. We'd go out and watch a watch a balloon launch, and then plus they would do them in preparations for launch to read the upper level winds for predict. Yep. Very cool. Well, I learned a heck of a lot today. This was great. No, I, I really do appreciate the time talking to you guys. It was a lot of fun. We hope you enjoyed this three-part interview on satellite technology with Tim Walsh. Join us for our next podcasts coming soon. For Tom Hill and Emily Carney, this is Eleanor Rangers for Space 3D.